Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. This is an extra episode as part of our series about climate and we're talking about the best-selling new book, The Uninhabitable Earth. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. As politics speeds up, slow down with a subscription to the LRB where Brexit and Trump are only part of a picture that includes, well, everything else. Read relevant pieces and subscribe at a special rate at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking. This is a conversation I recorded with David Wallace-Wells. The Uninhabitable Earth is a bestseller, not just here in the States as well. It's got, I think, probably more attention than any other book about climate that I can think of, with the possible exception of John Lanchester's The Wall. Part of the attention it's got is because it is, frankly, completely terrifying. It's not about worst-case scenarios. It's about where we might end up quite soon on the current trajectory if we don't do anything to change. We recorded this conversation a few weeks ago. David was in New York. I was in Cambridge. We started by talking about one of the really distinctive features of this book, It's about the absolute horror. One of the words that he uses is that he's describing a hellscape. Some of it is unimaginably bad, but it's also about the relative horror. Part of the point he's making is that every 0.1 degree centigrade of warming above where we are now could make a huge difference. And the difference between things that we think are unimaginable still really matters. So we started by talking about that is that the real message of this book? The small differences matter? Yeah, I think that, you know, most, even people who are engaged on climate, they tend to conceptualize it in these binary terms. Sometimes I get asked, is it here? Is it over? Is it too late? Are we fucked? It's all these yes or no questions. And the particular threshold of two degrees, which the scientific community has held out as um, this threshold of a catastrophe, has gotten a lot of focus as a result. People are really worried about crossing that threshold and really concerned, if they're concerned about the climate, about staying below it. But because we're likely to pass two degrees and we'll be navigating a world that could be 2.2, 2.4, 2.8, 3.2, the range of those outcomes will be determined by what we do, but that's the range that we're, we're talking about. I think we have to stop thinking about climate change in these binary ways and start thinking of it as a function that gets worse over time as long as we continue to burn fossil fuel and produce carbon and put it into the atmosphere. This is, you know, one of the four or five big misunderstandings that people who, even those people who really think a lot about climate tend to have. The first one I think about is is speed. You know, that uh, we were told for a long time that climate change is quite slow, happening on the timescale of at fastest decades, probably centuries and that we therefore have a lot of time to sort of innovate our way around the problem. But actually, half of all the emissions that we've put into the atmosphere have come in the last 30 years, which means um, we've brought the planet from basically a stable situation to the brink of real crisis and catastrophe in just three decades' time. That's since Al Gore published his first book on warming. It's since the UN established its IPCC report, which means we've done more damage in those 30 years than in all the centuries before. It means we've done 
more damage knowingly than, than in ignorance, which is really terrifying. The second big misconception people have is about scope. So climate change was talked about for so long in terms of sea level rise that you could feel if you lived anywhere but the coast, you were safe. And all of the new research suggests that that's, you know, kind of hopelessly naive that because of the economic impacts, which researchers suggest we could have a global GDP that's 20 or 30 percent smaller than it would be without climate change by the end of the century if we don't change course, the effect on conflict, we could have twice as much war or more. And the effect on conflict is true at the individual level, too. It's not just between nations. It increases the rates of murder and domestic assault and rape. Agricultural yields decline. It's almost impossible to see an aspect of modern life that won't be impacted in some way by climate change going forward, wherever you live on the planet. Obviously, the people in Bangladesh and India will be hit harder than people in, say, the UK and the US. But you won't be able to escape it, which is why I think it's it's really a, a kind of total system, a total challenge that will govern just about everything we do in the coming century. So that's the scope, which I think people misunderstood for a long time. And then the third misunderstanding was about severity. I mentioned that two-degree threshold. And the fact that scientists talked about it as this, you know, the brink of chaos meant that there was really very little public discussion of what was going to happen north of that. And we're almost certain to get north of that. So since the IPCC report last October, we're starting to hear a little bit more about some of these scarier outcomes. But I think the public, even the engaged public, is just starting to understand just what scale of suffering is possible and really not even beginning to think about what that will mean for the way that we all live together on the planet, which is, I think, the sort of most original part of my book, not the portrait of the of the science and what it will tell us about what impacts are to come but what it'll mean for our politics and our geopolitics, what it'll mean for our culture, storytelling, relationship to economics and capitalism and all that stuff. Um, and I don't think I'm doing like a, I'm making a definitive map of that future, but just sort of sketching out this whole new area of inquiry that hasn't really been dealt with much before, which is the kind of humanities of climate change. What will it mean for the way that we live together if the planet is degraded in the ways that science tells us it will be, even if we take dramatic action? So I guess one of the things that it's quite hard to work out when you're reading this this account is the reason that each 0.1 degree really matters because they just do. Wherever we are, every tiny thing that makes a difference could be the thing that really makes a difference for us. Or is it that we don't actually know where the tipping point is? So you describe quite a lot of the feedback loops, the ways in which some things might happen to the climate and we spiral quite quickly out of control and this thing rapidly accelerates. But we don't know where that point is. We we can't say we're approaching it and we need to be more and more cautious as we get near it because we don't know if it's here now. Oh, well, I absolutely think that we're already in a situation where every tiny increment is going to make things considerably worse. I think there are parts of the world that are already suffering dramatically from, from climate change and will be even more so in the sort of quite near future. It's estimated that many of the biggest cities in South Asia and the Middle East will be lethally hot in summer as soon as 2050. These are cities that have 5, 10, 12 million people living in them. And obviously, there are parts of the world that are flooding regularly. The real dramatic impacts are here. They're just, as William Gibson says, they're not distributed equally, and they're impacting the, the global south more than the global north. You know, the, the feedback loops, it's hard to know how to think about those questions because so much of them are tied up in scientific uncertainty. And, you know, I think we have a tendency as lay people to respond to uncertainty by making it an excuse not to act and to think, oh, well, it's possible that these things won't happen. And actually, it's, you know, the more rational, productive response to 
take the opposite approach and say, well, we need to do absolutely everything we can to to avoid risking tripping these systems to spiral out of control. But it's also even talking about the feedback loops, there are so many of them. You know, there's the albedo effect, there's forest dieback, there's methane from the Arctic. There was a, a new study just this week that was absolutely terrifying, suggesting that at a certain carbon concentration, which we're not likely to see this century, but possible early next century, that um, the cloud formation system would completely fall into disarray. And that impact alone would add as much as 8 degrees Celsius to global warming. Their estimates would be that we would be at about 4.5 degrees already. And that would take us immediately to 12 degrees, which would make really large parts of the planet literally uninhabitable. Um, You know, the title of my book is a bit hyperbolic, but if we got to 12 degrees, it really would mean not just the equatorial band in the tropics, but many of the mid-latitudes of the country would be uninhabitable. And that would be you know, truly catastrophic for not just all those people living there, but everyone living everywhere. But, you know, it's still all governed by uncertainty. And we really don't understand many of these mechanisms at all. I think it is possible that they'll arrive sooner than the sort of conventional scientific wisdom holds. I think in just about every case with climate change over the last decade or two, you would not be losing money to bet that things are getting worse faster, that almost every finding, almost every research paper that comes out is making the portrait of what's happening bleaker rather than less bleak. But these are systems that we don't really understand very much exactly how an ice shelf breaks up at exactly what point the Amazon could become a carbon source rather than a carbon sink. These are questions we don't really know how to answer. And so from a sort of conceptualization perspective and a policy perspective, I think it's, they argue for more aggressive action, but I don't know that they can really orient you in any concrete way in thinking about the near future, aside from just being an argument for action. The other thing is that there there are feedback loops and there are feedback loops. And one of the things that you talk about is not just the ways in which things might happen to the climate, to the environment that have these spiraling effects, but also what happens to the climate impacts what happens to society, what happens to politics. And those things can also then react back. So as we degrade our climate, we might well degrade our politics. And as we degrade our politics, it becomes harder and harder to deal with the challenges that we face environmentally. And one of the real anxieties, and you touch on this a lot, is that we're already there with that. I mean, these feedback loops are here now. We see in our politics a failure to deal with climate change. And out of that failure comes very serious threats to our politics. We're there now. Absolutely. Yeah. The, um, you know, the, the sort of classic example is the, the Syrian refugee crisis. The Syrian civil war was not caused in a simple, straightforward way by climate change, but it came out of a drought and famine that was produced by climate factors. And I think the total number of refugees was about 10 or 12 million, but only 1 million of them actually made it to Europe. And that influx of 1 million Syrian refugees completely scrambled European politics. We may not have had Brexit if it were not for that phenomenon. The whole populist wave that swept the continent over the last few years is, from a certain perspective, the result of that influx. And that's one million refugees. The UN says that by 2050, we could have as many as 200 million climate refugees globally. And they think the upper end of what's possible is 1 billion climate refugees. That's as many people as live in North and South America combined. I think those numbers are inflated. 
I think something like 100 to 200 million is a likelier outcome. But even so, that's a crisis 100 times worse than Europe had with the Syrian refugees. And we've seen what damage that does to politics there. Now, I think there is some reason to think that things may not play out in such dire ways going forward with our with our politics. You know, there's social science suggesting that the harshest response to newcomers is when there are very few of them. And when those numbers grow beyond a certain threshold, the native community becomes more welcoming and more more generous to, to those newcomers. I don't want to put my faith in that entirely, but I do think it's possible that once real global migration of a certain scale forced by climate becomes part of the way that everyone in the West, everyone in the global North thinks about the state of the world in the future, it's possible that we could grow more open. But it's also the case that our recent politics suggests the opposite. But when I think more broadly, if you had to imagine, if you had to invent a threat that was so global, so imminent, and so total to kind of conjure into being real, true, cosmopolitan global cooperation, climate change would be it. It's really, it's everywhere. It's impacting everyone. And it reminds you of our collective, really of our not to sound too corny, but of our collective humanity that we're all on this planet together. And yet the response to an event like the Syrian refugee crisis and generally the politics of the last few years show us that at the moment that we're really facing this crisis most directly, we're in fact retreating from all those institutions and all those organizations that we built up over decades to try to um, help us work together. And I think on some level, the you know the Paris Accords are a sign of the failure of that of that old order. This was about as good a outcome as you could have hoped from something like the US-led liberal international order of that was really solidified in the 90s. And just within 2 years of those accords being signed, I think you'd have to judge them a failure. I mean, I don't think that they're it's all over yet. I think they could be, you know, revived and and made stronger. But no major industrial country on the earth is on track to honor its commitments under the Paris Accords. Even if they did, those commitments would keep us north of three degrees by the end of the century, which would mean our grain yields would be half as bountiful and we'd have 15% smaller GDP than we would otherwise, which is an impact the size of the Great Depression, and it would be permanent. We'd have 40, 50, 60% more wars. The list goes on and on. And that would be where we would end up if all the countries of the world were honoring their commitments to Paris and none of them are because that kind of system, I think, is really falling apart. Um, And the question is, what kind of system succeeds it? And I don't really know the answer to that. I don't think anyone knows the answer to that. But I do think that if the order that I'm talking about, this sort of post-World War II, post-Cold War, American-led neoliberal order was built around the principles of human rights, prosperity, markets, and peace, you could certainly imagine a new world order coming into being that was built around carbon and climate as at least one of those core principles and maybe even the preeminent one. And that's why I find it so interesting that MBS, the you know kind of abhorrent leader of Saudi Arabia, has said that he needs the Saudi economy to be off oil completely by 2050. I think he understands that as soon as 2050, it simply won't be possible for any nation in the world to be producing and and selling or burning oil in the way that Saudi Arabia does now and still expect a place at the table of nations, that our geopolitics will so shift around this issue 
that behaving that way will produce at the very least aggressive sanctions and possibly something much stronger, some kind of stronger response, even including a military response. I think we're far away from that. But the idea that the politics that we will be managing climate change with will resemble the politics we have now, I think that's kind of a bad bet. I think that it's quite likely that it would be something that's um, initiated and presided over by Chinese power and Chinese values, which is a weird thing to say since, um, I don't know, it's hard to put your put your faith in an authoritarian like Xi Jinping. But I guess if you're going to have an authoritarian, it's good to have one who's woke on climate rather than the opposite. We are where we are. So given the system that we do have now, there is a real challenge, I think, for politicians to know how to talk about this, um, how to talk about it in the context of democratic electoral politics. I was struck by something said recently by the Australian Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. It's sort of exemplified, I think, a confusion that a lot of people have. I don't know if it's a confusion, but it sort of exemplified the challenge that politicians face. So the Australian government has just put aside some money. I mean, it's a big sum of money, but it's peanuts in, in cosmic terms. I think it's a few billion Australian dollars as a climate fund to take more aggressive action. And the Australian Prime Minister said, we have to do this because we've got to make sure that we've got a planet, a, an inhabitable planet to leave for our children. I mean, this is this is a life and death issue. And he also said, and we also have to make sure that they've got jobs um, and we mustn't do anything that damages the economy. And when you hear it, it, it feels unconvincing. I mean, it feels like make your mind up time. Which is it? Is this a life or death existential issue? Or is this about preserving jobs and familiar economic benefits? It doesn't sound like the politicians have found a language to say both things at the same time. Well, I think it's um, it's important to know that the economic conventional wisdom has really changed on climate just over the last few years so that it used to be the case that most economists and certainly most policymakers who were responding to the economic wisdom thought that fast action on climate would be bad for the economy, that it would require massive upfront investment, and that it would also involve foregoing economic growth going forward. And I think that's one main reason, actually, why we've had such slow climate action over the last decade or two, because most policymakers in most parts of the liberal world did believe that this was an important issue to address. They just, you know, were worried about the same trade-off that you're um, that you're talking about. But the new conventional wisdom is that the trade-off doesn't exist. In fact, that logic is entirely backward. Faster action on climate will be economically beneficial in very short order. So there's a major study last year showing that we could add $26 trillion to the global economy by just 2030 through rapid decarbonization. And, you know, I think that may be a slightly rosy projection, but the sort of mainstream conventional wisdom is now that climate change will be much, much more expensive than we thought it was a decade or two ago, that the costs of addressing it are actually going to be much smaller than we thought they would be. And so the logic of that thinking has flipped a little bit. I think you can then hold those two thoughts in your head at the same time, that we need to make the planet habitable. And we also need to you know, make our present tense affluent and prosperous. And that calculus works differently for different countries. And that's the, really the whole the nut of the problem is that we have this real collective action issue that every country in the world, even if they're completely invested in the idea of stopping climate change, is nevertheless incentivized to take slow action rather than fast action and to let the other countries of the world pick up the slack. I think that the, the new economic conventional wisdom will change policymakers' perspectives 
soon, which means I think we will have leaders around the world who are very focused on the issue. I think the real challenge is going to make sure that everybody lives up to their own obligations and doesn't try to withdraw from the commitments that they make rhetorically. But I don't know how much faith to have in that. I mean, um, when you see, you know, Justin Trudeau is like positioned himself as a real climate leader rhetorically, especially against Trump, but he's approving new pipelines. Angela Merkel has made, you know, enormous investments in green energy in, in Germany, investments that have sort of helped out much of the rest of the world by making that technology much cheaper. But she's also closed all these nuclear plants before they had the capacity to replace that energy with clean energy. And so they're relying on more dirty energy and their emissions are actually going up too. All around the world, you see stories like this where leaders who are very committed to climate by the standards of our present politics anyway, talking on the one hand in very exciting terms about a clean, green future, but are also you know, themselves making short-term political calculations in ways that reduce the real commitment that their that their countries are making. And I'm not sure how we solve that problem going forward. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. In some ways, the Australian Prime Minister represents a kind of conventional, familiar democratic politics. We are seeing also lots of, or the beginnings of new kinds of democratic politics, new kinds of democratic movements. Also, conventional or semi-conventional democratic politicians who are standing for election or are campaigning for election starting to say more radical things. So this is a world where the Green New Deal has become something not only that politicians aren't frightened of saying, but many politicians on the democratic side in the United States are starting to feel they have to say. There are new things happening too. And I do think that there's reason for hope on that point because of all of the grassroots activism that we're seeing, you know, Greta Thunberg and the climate strike across the continent, Extinction Rebellion in the UK, in the US, Sunrise, the Green New Deal. You know, I know the polling in the US best, but, um, you know, 73% of Americans are now believe climate change is real and that it's happening now. 70% of them are concerned about it. Those numbers are up 15% since just 2015. They're up 8% since March. I think extreme weather in a grotesque way is teaching us just how horrible this future is could be. The wildfires in particular, I think, were really vivid for people. And I do think um, while the general average liberal in, say, the UK or the US is still not nearly concerned enough about this issue, I think that it's moving in the right direction and moving actually quite quickly by any standard we would use in political science. The problem is we just don't have all that much time. So we need it to move much, much quicker even than that. If we really have to have our carbon emissions by 2030, as the IPCC says, I think that's unlikely to happen, but that's what they say we need to do to avert what they call catastrophic warming, which is a level of warming that the island nations of the world describe as genocide. Then that means the secretary general says we need to get started in 2019 with a World War II scale mobilization against climate. And for all of the excitement, which is exciting to me too, about the new climate activism and energy and concern, and we're very, very far from that scale of investment, that scale of project. I mean, maybe we'll see it in 10 years, but by then we'll have entirely run out of time um, to avoid those worst case scenarios. But again, I think it's, as we were talking about before, I think it's really important to keep in mind, it's not just about staying below two degrees. It's really about doing everything we can, um, no matter where we are. And that will be the case, even if we're at four degrees, even if we're at six degrees, it'll still be the case that 
a major driver, if not the main driver, of the future climate is what humans do, how much carbon we put into the atmosphere. And so if we're at a kind of climate hellscape of 4.3 degrees, 4.5 degrees, it'll still be the case that we can avert future warming by taking action now. And we should always keep that in mind, that there are these feedback loops that could bring the system out of our control. But at the moment, and I think for the foreseeable future, my sense of the science is that the main driver of what's coming is what we're doing. And so when you imagine these horrible scenarios that could come to pass, what you're really imagining is something that's effectively a tribute to human power, because it will be what we do or fail to do that brings us to three degrees or four degrees. It's not something that happened 100 years ago. It's not something about how the plants are, are dealing with it. It's because of how much carbon we will emit in the next few decades. And if we could redirect that energy and direction, rethink, reorient our, our culture and economies so that they were not doing this damage, we could conceivably avert most, if not all, of these really terrible impacts. And if we don't, it'll be all on us. And that's one of the flip sides of the speed issue that I was talking about before. This is not something that we can where responsibility can be passed on to an earlier generation or a later generation. We've gone from a quite stable climate to a climate on the brink of catastrophe in like 30 years, one generation. And we basically have about that much time, 30 years or one generation, to stop truly catastrophic levels from happening. And that means it's you and me. It's up to us. <laughs> and, you know, there, there, it's not going to be our children even. Our children don't have the time to grow up into political leaders and make those decisions. It's on us entirely. There was something I was really struck by that you said in an interview you gave not long ago in The Guardian, talking about your book. You were presented with the, the charge that is sometimes made against this book. It's so compelling because it's so terrifying, but it's so terrifying that it can make readers feel a little overwhelmed or even powerless. Um, it feels like this, this bad thing is coming and it may well be too big for us. So I think some of your critics have thought that there's a danger that it breeds a kind of fatalism or sort of, you know, we get into a crouch and we don't ever dare get out of it. But in response to this, you said there's lots that we can do. And in this Guardian interview, when you were asked, well, what? You said, just vote. Get out there and vote. Vote for the Green New Deal. Vote, vote for politicians who are offering to make a difference. But there's a part of me that, that wonders whether saying just vote is enough. I mean, voting is a pretty crude form of politics. It's an essential part of democratic politics. But do we really believe that voting for the right people, getting out there and voting, mobilizing around elections is enough for something on this scale? That that, that way of doing politics that's, in a way, all we've known, people who've lived the last few decades, is still fit for purpose? I'm not, I'm not there yet. Um, when I see in the U.S., what's happened with the Green New Deal. That is miles ahead of where the Democratic Party was on climate just a couple of years ago. It is so far beyond what was being talked about, even when the Obama administration was trying to concoct an aggressive climate policy. And every single presidential candidate has signed on to it. That is really radical transformation within the existing um, structure. You know, if you had looked at 
the movement that happened on healthcare and the Democratic Party from 2006 to 2009, there was a similar movement and we got something done. I mean, it turned out not to have been as successful as many on the left would have hoped, probably compromised into compromised out of efficacy um, before it got started, but still an achievement of a much different scale than anyone thought was possible just a few years ago. And, you know, when I look at that pace of progress, I do think that there is real possibility within the systems we have. When I was talking earlier about the inadequacy of our political systems, I really meant the sort of geopolitical order rather than the um, at the national level. But there are problems there too, obviously. Every country is um, has been moving far too slowly on this. And I understand why people would feel so frustrated, so angry, and so betrayed that they would not want to process their political activity through existing systems. On some level, I think the timescale works in the other way, which is, you know, I don't think we have time for a revolution. (laughs) You know, like if we really need to be starting in the next two, three, five years, I think there can be significant movement on this issue within existing structures. I'm not sure that I think it's feasible or strategic to upset them and overturn them in the name of climate action because I'm not, you know, I'm not sure how effective that would be. But my big response is like, it's just crazy that we're thinking we're thinking and talking in these terms. You know, as recently as a decade ago, you know, the question was whether the technocrats would be given the rain, the range that they needed to solve the problem. Now, I'm not saying I would have signed on to that particular perspective, but that was a sort of like conventional political view of the problem. Like, will we allow the people who know how to solve the problem to solve the problem? And they've done so little and like produced such little good faith in those people who are most concerned about the issue that obviously there's um, there's real reason for despair and frustration. I like no time for a revolution. That's a, that's a good new slogan for the movement. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm revealing my inner, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a child of the 90s. I'm a child of the end of history. I have, I've, um, I'm revealing that those features about myself. I mean, I, it's, it's funny when, I, when I'm writing about this, when I'm talking about it, I look around and I say, oh, my God, like, you know, the institutions of the, of the liberal order and neoliberalism and globalization have totally failed us in all of these ways. And yet in some core animal emotional impulse, like per level in me, those are still my reflexes. I still want to see something like the Paris Accords succeed. I still want to see something like the political systems that we have in the UK and the US deliver the advances that we need. Even as I look around the world and my conscious brain thinks that's impossibly naive and optimistic, I don't know. I'm just, you know, I, I'm, I'm revealing my, um, my sub-rational. You, it's, it's your inner bono. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. There's also a bigger question here that it's about politics, but in some ways it goes beyond politics. And you write a lot about this too. It's about imagination. It's about how we think about our future and the range of possibilities. And it's not just politics and politicians who are going to deliver that. It also depends upon fiction and works of art. We talked on this podcast to John Lanchester about his novel, The Wall, which is getting a a lot of attention. It's um, He says it's not a dystopia. It's partly a book about a world that's recognizably our world, but after some kind of fundamental change. But it gives us the opportunity to think really hard about what might be coming. Is a big part of the challenge here a challenge of imagination, actually about thinking differently about what's possible? Well, 
I think the short answer is is yes. I think that we're all complicated people with complicated relationships to our own imaginations and the way that we picture the climate future, even those of us who spend a lot of time doing that, people like me, people like the, you know, the activists of Extinction Rebellion. But are people like you typical? Yeah, but, you know, it's not like it's not like it's my whole life either. And that's in a certain way, uh, moral and political failing. And it's in a certain way, a reflection of how we all live in the world, which is in part through compartmentalization and denial. Because you, you capture this in the in the book. I mean, you, you talk in the book about the fact that while you were writing this terrifying book, you also had a kid. Yeah. Um, you had a baby. You did what people do. And that's a profoundly meaningful thing. And yet it's it's meaningful in the context of what you describe, which might be a world that's about to lose meaning in those ways. It's, it's going to be a meaningless world. I would say not meaningless. I mean, I think one of the um, one of the main themes of my my book is that we probably will endure, not just as a species, but probably also as a civilization, through all of these assaults. And there will probably be on the other side of that. I mean, not to say it will be over. That's a falsely binary way of thinking of it. But say 50 years from now, 70 years from now, when we're dealing with much more intense warming and punished by it every day, there will still be people living their lives. There will still be people having children and going to work. And one of the big areas of inquiry for me in in this book, what I think um, distinguishes it most from a lot of the other stuff that's been written about climate, even the scarier stuff, is that I'm trying to think about what that life will be like, what it would mean to be living in a quite degraded world. And when I think about that, it's a sort of a scary, depressing answer. But I actually think the likeliest outcome is that we renormalize, we recompartmentalize. I mean, there's one study that I, that I write about in the book at some length that looked at just the impact of air pollution just between 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees of warming. And they found that just through air pollution, that half degree of difference would kill 150 million additional people, right? That's 25 holocausts. When I say that to people, their eyes open up, they're horrified, or they can't believe it. It's so unthinkable that they don't want to think it, right? And that's all legitimate. That's a legitimate, proper moral response to the kind of suffering that is going to be brought into being by climate change. But we're already killing 9 million people a year from air pollution. 9 million people are already dying every single year from air pollution. And you and I, frankly, are not nearly horrified enough about that. And I worry, but I also think it's the likeliest outcome, that 50 years from now, there will be dramatically more suffering. There will be dramatically less prosperity. We will have less faith in the future. We will be less able to believe that the lives of our children will be better than our own, even in the corners of the world that are relatively well off and certainly in the parts of the world that are suffering most. Nevertheless, we will find ways to move forward. I think the real subject of my book is, what will that be like? We'll be living in a completely transformed world, and yet we will still be humans. What will that look like? How will that affect our moods, our psychology? How will it affect our family life? How will it affect our politics, our ethics? And these are huge questions that I think we haven't yet begun to really contemplate. But in a certain way, they will be as important to the lives of our children and grandchildren as the question of sea level rise or hurricane frequency or crop yields, because 
while we all live within nature and we will all suffer from its punishments, I don't think we are anytime soon going to get to a climate situation where those punishments are truly total in the sense of occupying absolutely all of our emotional, political, imaginative space. The question is how we move forward, how we rebuild our lives and rebuild our culture in that new universe. And I think it really will be as total a story, as all-encompassing, all-touching a story as modernity was or as financial capitalism has been. Um, These are systems that touch every aspect of our lives in ways that we don't necessarily recognize in real time, but which would be obvious to anyone observing from a distance. And I think the same will be true for climate in the 21st century. It will be shadowing everything, touching everything, in most cases damaging and deforming our lives, but also transforming them. And um, I don't think we yet know what that life will be like, but in addition to being horrifying, it's also fascinating. We will tweet the link, as always, at tppodcast underscore to David's book. I really, really recommend it. Also links to our other climate episodes, including John Lanchester, and we're going to be doing more too. We're going to be speaking to David King, who was instrumental in the Paris Accords, and get a sense from him of where he thinks we are with the climate now. I don't think it's good news. And then this week in our regular slot, we'll be back to, well, who knows, but Helen will be with us. Do join us for that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. <laughs>